Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 23. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, as I said, this is perhaps my favorite portion of scripture in the New Testament. And whenever we say things like that, we have to understand that we don't know as we ought to know, but it is, it is a wonderful portion of Scripture. Today we're going to be celebrating, uh, both in our, as we have already in our songs and in our creed, and now through the prayer and through our reading and now sermon today, we're going to be looking at the exclusivity and supremacy of Jesus Christ, how is, he is infinitely beautiful and glorious in his reign as the king over all, both things in heaven and earth, and how that kingdom was brought about. And so my title today is God's Work of Redemption and the Reign of Christ. And the reason for this is because Christ does not obtain his standing at the right hand of the Father apart from his obedience in the plan of God. That is, God from all eternity past had a plan to redeem his people, and that plan was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so even as we celebrate today the reign of Christ on the throne, we have to see it as the scriptures put it forth. We have to see it as the grand fulfillment and capstone of God's eternal plan, that the eternal, uncreated, infinitely glorious Son of God stepped into time in the incarnation, took on humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, and then as a man perfectly obeyed and enacted the wisdom of God which was hidden for all time. That, that Jesus Christ is not just the obedient son of God. He's not just one who comes and suffers in immense suffering in his body. He also is the revealer of the mystery of God. He is the one who is not only perfectly obedient, but he is the perfect expression. That when we see Christ and when we see his acting, we see the Father. We see God's acting in Christ's acting. And so I want to look at today four specific things in this passage. First will be a Trinitarian examination of Paul's introduction to his letter. We're going to look at the Father's grace at work in predestination and election. And these are words which are often uh, 
they, they often are recipients of scorn. These are words which we sometimes dismiss as being just mere theological concepts. And yet, as Paul puts forward, this is the grace of God. Without election, without predestination, Christ would not have come. He would not have been sent. He would not have actually redeemed us. That's the second thing we're going to look at. That Jesus' redemption was sufficient and powerful. That Jesus on the cross does not merely purchase the possibility of our salvation, but as Jesus Christ is offering his blood up on the cross, he is performing our salvation. He is not merely doing something which he hopes the Father will bless, but as he is the God-man, he is enacting our salvation. And then we're going to look at the promise and sealing of the Holy Spirit unto our enlightening. So, so the Holy Spirit is given through Christ that after Christ's perfect obedience, he then gives the Spirit as a surety or a guarantee of our inheritance and how that guarantee reveals what our inheritance actually is. And so I want to, through this passage, through working and wrestling with Paul's words and phrases, I want to humbly appeal to you that we have no idea the hope to which we've been called. We have, no, we, we have only heard the faintest whispers of the glory which awaits those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would be given for one specific purpose, that they would have their hearts enlightened. That even though these saints have been redeemed and washed by Christ's blood, that they would be opened up, that their eyes, their spiritual eyes would be able to see where they're going. And not only that they would be able to see where they're going, but also the reign of Christ as it affects them today. Especially in our century, when the church in the West is in such great peril and such great apostasy, we lack a true understanding of the reign of Christ now and how that reign is being affected through the church. So I, what I want to do in, this, uh, in these next few minutes is to humbly demonstrate the eternal plan of God and your eternal destiny in Christ, which uh, immediately is, is a, a tall task. So I would encourage you, we will be wrestling with the text. And God gave you minds and hearts. And God gave you minds which have the capacity to read his word and to examine it. And, and like Jacob, I would call you to wrestle with the angel of the Lord saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what I hope to do with this passage today is to actually bring forth a great hope by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would understand where we're going, that we would begin to live with that understanding, that that wisdom and insight would be at the forefront of our minds. So, uh, God's work of redemption and the reign of Christ as expounded in three points, the Trinitarian examination, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unto examining the reign of Christ for the church. As Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians, he explodes into praise at the very beginning. Verse 3 says, blessed be, and we often are wondering why Paul is saying that God is blessed, and yet we're actually reading it the wrong way. We hear Paul praising God. He says, God be praised for dot, dot, dot. And he's exploding into praise as he begins to unpack the eternal mystery of the gospel that was hidden for all ages, but now has been manifest in Christ. He describes God's work of redemption as a singular work, and he does this beginning with putting forth the Father's grace in election, that is God's choosing, and predestination, determining from the beginning. He does this in planning, purpose, and execution. That is, the Father has a plan for how salvation will be brought forth in the earth. He has a purpose. There is an end goal to which we're going, I made mention of earlier. There's a purpose and there's an execution. That God's grace is at work in every layer and step of the unfolding work of redemption in eternity and in time. All of the Father's actions in this passage are said to be done in, through, and by Christ. And what this demonstrates to us is two things. First is the Father's love and approval of the Son of God. That is to say, I would never invest my responsibility into someone who I don't approve of. Even on a human level, I would never give a task to someone who I don't think is sufficient to accomplish it. 
right? You would never hire a contractor who's unskilled in the thing that you want them to do. And so likewise, we see that the Father doing all things in him, by Christ, in Christ, he invests authority in Jesus Christ. And this shows us two things, his love and his approval. That the eternal Father loves and delights in the Son, and that the, that delighting and approval is the reason for his investing, his deputizing, as it were, of the Son with the authority to perform salvation. That is, the Father so loves the Son from eternity past that he purposed to do all, all of salvation in him. That is, the Father has a desire to give to the Son the right and the power to perform salvation in his incarnation. It not only shows us the Father's approval of the Son, but it also shows us the Son's perfect and powerful obedience to the Father. Christ did not uh, fail in his task, but as Paul explains, that all of these things were done in Christ, that they were completed, that they were finalized, that they were actualized. All of the grand purposes of the Father's heart, the Son perfectly fulfilled and obeyed. Isn't this an amazing understanding of who Jesus Christ is as the perfect son? Those of you who have children, you are already beginning, even if they are young, you're already beginning to see those things which they do which warm your heart and fulfill your desire and your purpose and all of your hopes that, that they would be and, and become. Uh, one of these examples that has come in my life in the last few weeks is when, we've be, when we pray at our dinner table, Susan is very quick to clasp her hands together and to, to really wait before we eat because she has been trained now by this habit, even though she's so young. And what that does to my heart is amazing. And what I have to believe is that as the father who has loved the son from eternity past sees Christ's obedience, he is all the more shouting his praise and approval over the son of God. That is to say that Christ dwelled in the bosom of the Father, and yet Luke tells us that he grew in favor with God and man, that the Father is constantly approving of the Son. He put forth a purpose in the Son, and the Son accomplished it in the incarnation. So the Father's love of the Son and the Son's perfect obedience are so complete and so sure and so thorough and so indivisible that in this passage, it is hard for us sometimes to determine who Paul is talking about. When he uses the relative pronoun him and his, in him, his purpose, his will, etc., it is often difficult, and I believe Paul is doing this on purpose, that the ambiguity is somewhat intentional, and it forces us to really examine quickly, or closely rather, who is Paul speaking about? Are these the purposes of Christ? Is this the obedience of the Father? Or is this the, the wisdom of Jesus and not the wisdom of the Father? No, it is done in both of their union in the work of salvation. Though the triune persons carry out different actions in eternity past and in time, all of God acts when God saves his people. That is to say, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father are so perfectly united in unity and in harmony and, and in union that whenever one of them is acting, it is corresponding to the desires of the other two and by the power and for the glory of the other two. That when the Son comes and takes on his flesh in the incarnation, he is doing the will of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Son is offering up his blood on the cross, Hebrews tells us he ascended into the heavenlies through the eternal spirit and he offered up his blood by the spirit to the Father. And so we see over and over again in this passage a simultaneous action that whenever the Father, the Son, or the Spirit are said to be doing something, they're working in harmony and love. This is the quality of love in our God. There is no division of purpose. There is no disunity of love for the saints. It is not as if the Father is seeking to get more glory than the Son or the Son is seeking to glorify the Father without the Spirit. They are all working in mutual love and harmony. So Paul explodes into praise at the very first verse after the introduction of this letter saying, God should be blessed. 
I am blessing God for all of these things that he has done because I've gained, Paul is, has gained an understanding spiritually of what he's about to write. And he's saying, God be praised. This is amazing, unending love, unfathomable wisdom and mercy that he's about to put forth on the paper. Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, he begins to demonstrate, Paul says, this Father of the saints is the perfect Father. He's given them every blessing. Christmas is coming up, and many of you fathers and mothers are facing the difficult challenge of, we've already bought five gifts, can we buy the sixth? Is it, is it okay to lavish we actually keep a bunch of things at our house and we never bring them out. Uh, we, we never actually give them until the next thing because, oh, she can't have four presents at Thanksgiving alone. It, it wouldn't make much sense on a human level. And yet, Paul is demonstrating the wisdom of the, Holy, of the Heavenly Father. He's saying every blessing which is in Christ has been given by the Father to the saints who has blessed us in Christ, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We could speak a sermon on this verse alone and never leave because what this is saying is that everything we need in Christ has already been given to us by the Father. It's already been accredited to our account as those who are remade in the image of Jesus. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the Father has put forth blessings, and he's not done it just to redeem us, but he's also done it in order to take us somewhere, that we would be holy and blameless. Paul says, to the end that, or that we would become, or that we would begin to walk as holy and blameless people. That we who have been washed on a spiritual level and on a on a imputational level or on a level of God's crediting to us would then begin to walk out that holiness and that, that purity. So those blessings which the Father has set upon the saints are now theirs in Christ. Everything which could be asked for has been given to you by G through Jesus by the Father. As the perfect Father, then there is nothing withheld from them which they need. Our Father is not a Father who washes us and then requires that we mature ourselves. Our Father has given us everything for life and godliness, and that includes our sanctification and the grace which we need to defeat indwelling sin, ongoing sin. So the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We not only have been washed we not only have been given a destiny that we would be holy and blameless, but we have been invited into the very family of God. That we would be given a name, sons, and if you will, daughters. That, that very name which is given to the Son of God. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. The ESV capitalizes the word beloved. And I think that's supposed to say that, that Jesus Christ is the beloved. That God has blessed us as we have been found in Christ, that we have run to Christ as our refuge and we have hidden in him. Just as Moses, upon seeing the glory of God, it asks to be hidden and God says, there's a cleft, there's a hole in the rock and I will close my hand behind you before I proclaim my name. Behold the Lord, the Lord God gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy, extending grace to thousands of generations to those who fear him. This is what Paul is saying is that he has blessed us in Christ and he has given us every blessing, not just redemption, not just washing, not just a change of destiny from hell to heaven, not just peace with God, but we have been brought into a family. We who were rebels and strangers and aliens, we, were, we who were outside of the covenant of promise, we have not just been brought into the country, we've been brought into the home. That is what we've been given in Jesus Christ. Though God's love was set upon the elect from before creation, he purposed that it would only come about through the coming of Jesus Christ. As the Father desires to bring many sons to himself, therefore he honors his only begotten as the agent through whom they would be adopted. Think about the glory that is involved even on a human level of, of adoption. If you've ever spent time on websites like Facebook or um, there, there's other ones like BuzzFeed, things like this. There's, there's a few Christian ones. 
every once in a while you'll see a video in which a father or a mother comes to their son and then reads them the court papers uh, that they've been finally adopted, that the, the adoption has f- been fulfilled. What has been going on on a human level is now come to pass on a legal court level. And that child by law, by, by the magistrate is belonging to that family and, and it can't be disowned. That's the the view of adoption in the New Testament. One of the things that is so clear in the New Testament is the adoption that they've been adopted with is such that they can never be disowned. In that day, you could could disown a natural child, but if you adopted them, you could never disown them. That was the culture, and, and that's the context that Paul is using to bring forth this imagery of God's eternal plan, that those who God wishes to make as many sons and daughters are brought through that adoption in the only begotten son. Again, this shows us the father's great love and approval of Jesus Christ. Christ is then demonstrated as the one in whom we receive our redemption. Verse 7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, I take that to be the father, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, Paul is dancing back and forth with these relative pronouns. And if you're not careful to understand the context, some things can get out of place. But I think these are the correct attributions here, that Christ is the one who gives us the redemption of our sins, uh, the redemption by his blood, which is the forgiveness of our sins. More on that in a minute. But all of that is revealing the will of the Father. This redemption was purchased with his blood, which he freely offered up on the cross. When Jesus is going to the cross, as he's led in captivity by Roman centurions, being placed there by the Pharisees, handing, them, handing him over to Pilate, and then Pilate over to Herod, and, and back and forth, Christ is going as a captive, and yet the New Testament clearly says, both Christ himself and the rest of the New Testament writers, he says, I lay down my life and I have the authority to take it back up again. You see, the cross of Christ was a voluntary act in which Jesus perfectly and willingly submitted his will, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, so that he would fulfill the will of the Father. That as God, he has one will with the Father, but as a man, he even submits his human will to the divine will. And therefore, Jesus Christ is not just a model, but he is a true model of what does human submission to the will of God look like? It looks like the Son willingly loving the Father enough to die in the flesh and to be crucified And he doesn't just go there in order for something to take place that happens to him. You see, we often view the cross as something that happened to Christ. And yet he says, I lay down my life. The the book of Hebrews tells us the spiritual understanding of what was happening at the cross, that, that Jesus was offering up his blood. This is a high priest who sacrifices himself and has the power to complete the sacrifice even as he is killed. That is the glory of Jesus Christ as the mediator and the high priest of our confession. He accomplishes the death which is necessary to atone for sin, even though he dies as a man in the atonement. What a marvelous Savior we have. The shedding of his blood, therefore, in this verse is seen as the necessary and sufficient cause. Now, this, these are some complicated words, but I just want to explain them very clearly because it is so important to your soul to understand what Jesus Christ did that I really believe that this is Paul's aim in verse 7. In him we have the redemption, we, in him we have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses. I want to submit that the phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses, does not just modify the word redemption, it modifies the redemption through his blood. Why is that important to understand? It is this, as regards necessity, that is, why did Christ have to die? Christ's blood was the only pure sacrifice in all of creation that has ever existed or ever existed in that time or could exist in the future. It is the only pure offering which was necessary to assuage the wrath of God and to eliminate it completely for believers that he offered up a perfect, redeemable sacrifice, a perfect, spotless sacrifice. 
We're told of this in the Passover, that the Israelites had to choose a perfect, spotless lamb. All of the sacrifices that were offered up in the Old Testament, they all had to be animals without spot or blemish. None of them could have a maimed leg or a broken bone. They all had to be perfect specimens. Why? Because God was removing sin through the blood of bulls and goats? No, but because they were being a pointer forward to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he alone could be a sufficient offering for his people. As regards sufficiency, Paul describes that redemption as being the forgiveness of our trespasses. Why is this important to see? It is because of this. Jesus Christ did not merely make our redemption possible, but rather he completed the work. We're going to see in the next few weeks as we move to the time of Advent that the name given through the angel of Jesus Christ is, he shall be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. It doesn't say that he will make it possible for his people to be redeemed, or he will merely open up a way for his people to be redeemed, but he will redeem them. He will bring it to pass. He will finalize their redemption. Christ does not merely make our redemption possible, but fully accomplishes his purpose. As Christ, the God-man, offers up his blood, he is purchasing forgiveness. You see, Jesus, as he suffers on the cross, is not merely a man. He is God and man. And when he offers up his blood, he has the right to perform our forgiveness. That is, he was not offering up his blood to the Father, hoping that the Father would receive it. He knew fully and surely he will glorify the Father in the cross. He accomplishes that which he sets out to do. Christ is victorious, not just in the resurrection, He's victorious on the cross. He sufficiently and perfectly offers up his blood and it accomplishes the redemption of our, the forgiveness of our sins. That's what I believe Paul is doing. All of that theological understanding, I believe, is set at work in these verses. In him, we have redemption through his blood. What is our redemption through his blood? It is the forgiveness of our sins that that redemption is then applied by the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, it is fully purchased by Jesus. And further than that, Christ is not merely performing salvation. He also is demonstrating the wisdom of the Father. Christ was making known to us the mystery of the Father's will, according to his, sorry, the Father was making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven Uh, all things in him, things in heaven, and things on the earth. Christ, therefore, is seen in these verses as the one through whom the Father chose to act. That the Father was not willing to perform salvation apart from doing it through the Son. That is how much the Father loves the Son. Christ, therefore, is seen as the revealer of the secret plan of God, That is, as it says in O Come All Ye Faithful, in the, I believe it's the third verse as it's sung in most churches, we sing, Hail, Lord, we greet thee, born this holy morning, Jesus, to thee all glory be given, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Every time I sing that verse, I am thinking about what that means, that as John chapter 1 tells us that Christ was the expression of the Father, that everything the Father wanted to do for his people, everything the the Father wanted to say to his people was done in Jesus Christ. That is what I understand Jesus to be in John chapter 1 and here in this, this verse. He is the revealer of the secret things of God. Christ is the one through whom all things are united. The great breach being made in the fall is finally stitched up in the piercing of Jesus Christ. Whenever Paul uses this phrase, things in heaven and things on earth, I I believe he's calling us to, as those who've read the scriptures, to remember that phrase from the beginning of scripture. In the beginning, God uh, made the heavens and the earth. And that great established of union in the creation was quickly torn asunder by Adam, that quickly the things of earth were submitted to a curse through Adam's sin, and Christ, by the piercing of his body, then stitches up the breach that was made in Adam's sin. And that's why Paul is able to, in this verse, say, the things which were in heaven and things on the earth. 
You see, Jesus does not merely purchase redemption. Jesus does not merely reveal the Father's will and character and nature. He also is the one through whom the great breach of the fall is resolved. He is the one who restores the gap between God and man. He is the one who mediates between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth being at war with each other are finally united in Jesus Christ. Of this unique office, the office of the mediator of which we've been speaking, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher of the Great Awakening in this country before even the founding of our country in our first documents, wrote in his journal of a vision or an experience that he had, which upon my reading of it this last week was so moving that I I thought I would share it to you, share it with you. He says, once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place as my manner commonly has been to walk for a divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary. Now, I want you to understand, Jonathan Edwards had been a pastor for two decades before this time took place. I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, pure, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek, gentle condescension, which continued as near as I can judge for about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. Jonathan Edwards was one of the most supreme preachers of his day, and yet by, a, by an act of the Holy Spirit, God saw fit to give to Jonathan Edwards a greater understanding than he had ever seen through a vision. And that vision was not of some new spiritual reality. It was a revelation of what always had been clear in the scriptures, done in the work of Jesus Christ on the earth, which was an understanding how Jesus Christ condescended for his people. That he came, and though he had glory with the Father, he laid it aside, stepped into time, died our death, was raised, and then ascended to the right hand of God. That all of that was done to fulfill his office, to redeem you and I. And it is exactly this reason why Paul then prays for his people. Though our, uh, through our redemption, our sins have been cleansed, but God's redemption radically changes our destiny and future. So often when we begin to walk in the gospel, we think about our past, and we think about the forgiveness that we have received, and a wonderful, beautiful, sweet, perfect forgiveness. But not only that, through Jesus Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit, and that blessed Holy Spirit comes to us by God's design in order to deliver us, not just from indwelling sin, but just the base way of thinking that would be ours if we were just human. That is to say, the Holy Spirit comes to redeem our minds so that we would begin to understand where we have been called. Just exactly who is this God who has adopted us and cleansed us. So beyond our forgiveness, by God's grace, we receive an inheritance in Him. It's not just escaping hell or going to heaven, but as some of the great divines have said, if Christ not be in heaven, then heaven would be a hell to me. That is to say, the greatest privilege in the gospel is not escape from hell. It's purchase of Jesus Christ and an inheritance in God himself. I was not just a stranger and an alien who was guilty of sins. I also had no understanding of my creator. I had no fellowship with my maker. And that is the sort of inheritance which Paul writes about. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That phrase might be is very interesting because it doesn't really have an end in mind that we might just be and we might exist forever and ever to be a living witness of the glory of Jesus Christ that for all eternity we would behold and give praise to the Son for his work in redemption. God himself, therefore, is seen as the inheritance We don't come to Christ to receive healing. We don't come to Christ to receive money. We don't come to Christ to receive racial reconciliation and governmental change and and the better behavior of our children. We come to Christ because we have nothing that is lasting or sufficient. We have nothing eternal. As we talked about uh, the last few weeks, Martin Luther says on his deathbed, 
brothers, we are beggars. This is true. You see, we have nothing of our own that we can wield, no power, no merit, no, no uh, worth of our own, where we can just simply lay hold of the eternal things of God. We are brought into them, and we are given those things as an inheritance. And that inheritance is not something other than the Creator. I believe Paul is saying that inheritance is God that you have been given the privilege by Jesus Christ and the sending forth of the Holy Spirit to know the eternal God. To this end, the Father then gives us the Spirit through Christ. Verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit himself is the assurance of the promise of God. If you've ever bought in a home or purchased a home, you have had to give a down payment. And that down payment is usually not with a car or even with gold, although some banks might accept that. It is not usually with something that is disposable or could be resold the assurance of the promise to pay the loan is given in the very form with which the loan will be satisfied. That is to say, if let's say, for example, your home is $50,000 and you need a down payment of 20%, the bank will require $10,000. And the reason why is because they want to have a proof, they want to have some sort of measure of, do you have the ability to pay the rest of the loan? That is what loans and assurance and promises to pay, even you can extrapolate this to bonds that are sold by companies or bail bonds that are given for prisoners to get out of jail or, or, or what have you. The point that I think Paul is making is that the Holy Spirit is given as the promise or the assurance of our inheritance. And if the Holy Spirit is our promise of our inheritance, then how much more is our inheritance, the Father and the Son forever and ever? That is what we've been given in the gospel. So knowledge of the depth of the riches of the gospel then moved Paul to unending thanksgiving and petition, not just praising God, but also asking God that he would do something by the Holy Spirit for his readers. For this reason, because of everything he's just said from verse 3 to verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What a wonderful thing Paul is doing for us because what he's saying is the worth of their, of their coming to the gospel, their worth of, the worth of them moving from death and into life is so powerful that he is always thanking God for them. That is how precious the victory a saint has in coming out of death and into life. You see, when we experience victories in our lives, we celebrate for a few hours, maybe even a few days. But eventually, the lackluster becomes apparent. It, it begins to get tarnished. Even the greatest news that we have in our lives, better jobs, finally getting married, whatever we hope to set our, our future on, it eventually begins to diminish. What Paul says, it's never diminishing. Whenever I remember that you have come into Jesus Christ, I'm still thankful. What an amazing testimony of Paul's life. Because the Spirit, therefore, is the active agent of our perseverance, he who sustains us while we are in the body, Paul then prays that we would be all the more mindful of him. Verse 17, what is Paul praying for? He's praying for this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Interestingly, this seems to contradict what he just said in the prior verses, especially verse 14 and verse 13, that they were sealed with the Holy Spirit, that they have received the Holy Spirit. Now he goes on to pray and says, I'm praying that the Father would give you the Spirit. This seems to be contradictory. Verse 18, for what purpose? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The question is this, why do we need our eyes, the eyes of our heart to be enlightened? Paul's already said we've received redemption. We've already been forgiven of our sins. We've already been adopted. We already have an inheritance. Why then do we need as saints who've had all these blessings of God come to us, why do we need to have our eyes opened? 
it is because this chiefly, despite the beauty and glory of our salvation, due to the remaining corruption in our minds and in our hearts, we do not know God as we ought. Who has roused himself to lay hold of you? The answer is no one. We forget the gospel and live as, as if we are spiritual orphans and without grace. We've been adopted in the gospel and yet we routinely forget our adoption. We forget the worth of the blood of Christ and return to former sins. Hebrews warns us to not return to former sins because that is a trampling of the blood of Christ. It is, it is a despising of his perfect offering. It is a lightening and a lessening of his sufferings. We quench the spirit through unholy and prayerless living. We do all of these things. And that is why I believe Paul has this in mind. They need their eyes opened. Even though they've been redeemed, they need to be awakened. They need to be roused from time to time as Christians, but they need to be roused in a way that will persist. Not just some mere will of a man or a woman who is a saint who desires to live a more godly life. The sort of rousing that Paul is asking for can only be done by the giving of the Spirit. That is to say, the Spirit himself must indwell these believers and open up the eyes of their heart. They, the Spirit is the one who can awaken these believers. Our minds do not yet continually operate with the reality of God's power at the forefront. If you've ever had a time of prayer, you, you quickly can, can remember from your own experience that mere minutes after your prayer is ended, when you talk to a loved one or talk to a coworker or are confronted with some difficulty, instantly your spirit of holiness is gone. We do not live as those who have the presence of the Holy Spirit persistently at work in our minds. And I'm not just talking about walking around like mystics going through the desert and experiencing some sort of supernatural activity at all times. I'm speaking about having such a great awareness of the presence of God, not just in our experience, not just in some sort of bodily experience or some sort of thought experience, but one that shapes our heart's affections to which we are transformed by the Holy Spirit in a deep and lasting way. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul prays so earnestly for this enlightening because God's power is immeasurably strong towards in us in Christ. What Paul is praying for here is that they would understand that the very same power with which God raised Jesus from the dead is at work in them, and it is, as Paul says, toward those who believe. That God's power is not aimed at you in wrath, but in love and in motivation and in energy that the Father has redeemed you by the blood of his son and he's washed you and invested in you the Holy Spirit and now his power which was shown forth in Jesus Christ it's that same power which is at work in you and it is for you not against you Paul describes the power as the same power the very same power verse 19 what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. If the Father's love for the Son is so sure in election and predestination, all before Christ's obedience in the flesh, how much more manifest is his approval of the Son in the incarnation, and how much more is that a testimony to the mighty power of God to bring to pass the things which he's promised and eternally purposed. What Paul is doing is he's saying these were the eternal purposes and plans of God which were performed perfectly in Jesus Christ. And now because they have been done in Jesus Christ, God the Father has seen fit to raise his Son to the right hand of power and invested him in a name with a name which he did not have before the incarnation that he would be seen as the Lord and Christ, as, as Acts 2 tells us through Peter's sermon. And not only has all of that happened, the very same power of God was not exhausted in the incarnation, resurrection, and ascension, but is still actively being applied by the Holy Spirit to saints. That is the sort of power which is for you 
in the gospel. You see, what this vision delivers us from is it delivers us from all sorts of murmuring and complaining and setting aside and making excuses for our weakness of, oh, this is how I was raised or this is, I was abused when I was younger. Everything has been moved. Heaven and earth have been set aside by Jesus Christ. He has passed all boundaries and this is the power of God on display towards you who believe. That is what Paul is saying. I want the Father to give you the Spirit so that you could understand these things. And that's why I use that quote from Jonathan Edwards. I don't think it merely can be apprehended by human wisdom alone. It requires, as Paul prays for here, the Holy Spirit must awaken you to this power and to this privilege. Christ's obedient and peaceful suffering, his victorious triumph over evil powers, his defeat of death in the grave, and his ascension into the heavenlies are the demonstration of the power of God. Just pick any one of these things on a given day and meditate upon it. Think about this for a, se- for a second. We know that the heavens, now at this time in our history as a humanity, we know that the heavens are not just the atmosphere above the earth. And so when we think of the ascension of Jesus Christ, that he bodily was raised and he ascended into the heavens, that that ascension was not just a leaving of the physical earth and breaking its bounds of gravity. He transitioned and retained a physical body and went to the spiritual place called heaven, where God lives forever. That alone is immense, unthinkable spiritual power, the sort of power which the enemy could never emulate or have some sort of fake with. That's not a sort of power that any person could wield for themselves. Even if they had the entire earth vote for them and install them as king over the world, they could not perform that action of leaving physical reality and transcending to the higher spiritual physical reality of heaven where Christ stands. No one can reach up onto Christ's throne and unseat him and take their place on that throne. That is what Paul is doing in these passages. He's saying that's the power that was at work in Jesus Christ, and that power is towards us who believe. Knowing that all of our blessings are received in him, we have confidence that God's power toward us who believe is indeed immeasurably great, and that's what Paul prays for. It is this power that God gave Christ to be the head for the church. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ therefore reigns as king over everything, king over heaven, king over the earth, king over the galaxies and planets and far reaches that we will never explore. Christ reigns supreme in those things, but he does not just reign supreme over the heavens, he also reigns supreme over the earth. He reigns supreme over all governments and all territories, all lands and treaties, are under his will. Jesus Christ reigns supreme over time and centuries and cultures and shifting designs and and fashions. Christ reigns supreme over every power that existed in their day and in our day and in the ages to come. Christ reigns supreme over all laws and over everything that can be established as an authority. Jesus Christ is king over all. And Paul is saying that God gave him that right because of his perfect obedience and he does it for the sake of the church. That he reigns supreme, not just to play a heavenly game of ping pong with the Father. He reigns supreme in order to bring about his purpose for you and for me. That Jesus Christ does not reign supreme for his own glory, but is given as the head for the church. Christ reigns supreme, wielding a mighty scepter, which we see in Psalm 2, with which he dashes the evil nations, and he, out of his mouth proceeds a sharp sword, that is the gospel, which either kills his enemies for everlasting or kills his enemies by turning them into his friends. That two-edged sword turns every which way, and it protects the entrance into heaven. That is the gospel which proceeds out of Christ's mouth, which he speaks forth through his church. That is why Christ was given as head over the church. And the problem is that Paul is addressing, the problem that is at work in the Ephesian church and in our church and every church throughout the world is that we do not know these things. We don't know them in a way that is persistent. We don't know them in a way that moves our hearts. We don't know them in a way that helps us defeat sin. And so all the more, Paul is telling them so that they would apprehend them by the grace of God. Everything which Christ does 
is done with the goal of preserving, protecting, enlarging, and glorifying his church, his body on the earth. Paul, at the end of this letter, gives an admonition to husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church in that passage? He uses his word to wash her, to beautify her, to cleanse her from every impurity, and to adorn her for the marriage supper. And through Christ's gracious rule, the Father then designs that everything be subjected under his feet. If Paul ended his letter here, it would be good enough. But look at what he says about the body of Christ in verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If God's power was displayed through Christ's incarnation and passion, how much more will it be displayed now that his triumph is secure in victory? He has given, therefore, the church to be the manifestation of his reign upon the earth. That is, as Paul says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is the destiny that the Christian church has been called to. That is the hope which Paul is referencing earlier in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this great calling We thank you for Paul's understanding, Paul's wisdom. God, we could spend years swimming in passages like this. We thank you for the mighty privilege of your word, which is powerful. We pray that you would give us what Paul is asking for the Ephesian church, that you would give us a greater understanding of the Holy Spirit, that we would have our hearts enlightened, that we would know the hope to which we've been called, that we would know the great power which you have towards us who believe. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from our failures and our our weaknesses. We thank you for the grace which doesn't just wash us by the blood of your Son, but also gives us a deposit of the Spirit for our sanctification and growth. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your victorious suffering and resurrection. We thank you for your incarnation, which we long to understand and to behold and to, to, to... meditate upon. And Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of becoming a part of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would elevate our vision to not only our personal destiny, but our destiny as your people, that we would truly fulfill all of our, all of our purpose, all of our, our, all of our potential in Christ. Lord, that none of us would come to the end of our days and say, I didn't lay hold of what Christ called me to. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. We, we bless you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.